podcast is something that's kind of near and dear to a lot of us. And that is, you know, what's the deal with private equity uh, infiltrating uh, facial plastic surgery? Actually, for that matter, infiltrating uh, medicine. Um, you know, we, we're hearing more and more about it. We're hearing about people who, quote, sold their practice, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, what's, what's the deal with private equity? Now, my confessions are that I learned a ton about this because I, uh, I was courted and dated by private equity. In fact, it first started about four years ago, about was pre-COVID. And I was approached by a couple of <clears throat> really smart uh, Harvard MBA uh, candidates who heard my podcast and asked for my to get together. And what I learned with them is I got together over two or three occasions and we talked and, and for lack of a better term, you know, kind of picked my brain and, and, you know, where the industry is going. And um, so I learned a lot from them and then COVID happened and things were quiet and then they came back and started talking. Meanwhile, I'd been approached by many, many people in the private equity uh, arena. So what everyone needs to know about an aesthetic medicine, about private equity, and these are my confessions of things that I learned. So what's private equity? I mean, basically, in a nutshell, it's the investment of equity capital into private companies. So, so there's a company out there, and it could be your practice. It could be another company doing a few million bucks. And there are private investors out there that will come pull their money together and buy your business or buy the equity in your business. That's why it's called private equity. What, what's the difference between private equity and public equity? Well, public equity is the equity, uh, is equity coming to you from a publicly traded company. Now, the, what's the difference? The publicly traded companies are governed by the SEC and they have a lot of guidelines <clears throat> and they also have a lot of reporting. Private equity can be kind of a private deal. No one needs to really know about it. So in, an, in a typical deal, an investor buys a stake of a private company with the hopes of ultimately realizing an increase in value of that stake or an ROI or a return on investment. People don't just put money into your company to buy stock in it or a business because they're being nice. They're, they're doing it because they're looking for a return on investment. Uh, so to speak. And that's what private equity is, is, you know, is doing. Now, why is PE interested in aesthetic medicine? Well, <clears throat> from all the data that's out there, we are expecting sustained growth. And we're expecting sustained growth over the next many, many years. And I'll go through this a little bit. But there's also some fragmentation in the market. In other words, aesthetic practices around the country that are growing rapidly all over the place, popping up are, um, the, the market fragmented meaning the business model in each one of these is just a little different. And that is the perfect storm for consolidation. Okay. This is what I talk about as far as, you know, the equity consolidation curve. If you look at 
the maturity of a business model, and this is a stage and it's not necessarily temporary, but go to the left as a startup. And in the startup, so let's just talk about maybe 15, 20 years ago or 10 years ago when started opening up. I, I, I got to tell you, 20 years ago, we started going into, we started 2000. We would have health fairs and people would come up to us and say, I'd never put that stuff in my body. It's poison. Now, okay, now we have, not only do we have the 21 year olds getting Botox, but they're get, they won't, they won't call. They got to, they want to book online. Okay. So, you know, about eight or nine years ago, my one daughter who, who's now 23, 32, 33, she was 25. And she said to me, dad, I, I need some Botox for like her Gobella area. And I was blown away. I mean, here's my 25 year old, like telling me she needs Botox. And, you know, just a few years ago, you know, people were talking about it as being poisoned. So look how accepted the fillers have become, right? Look how acceptable they become. So what you're seeing is you're seeing rapid growth in the revenue of this, okay? And alongside of that, there's gross, and then there's, you know, there's profit. And as this profit goes up, somewhere in here with this growth curve here is where you will see cash infused in the market in this region is the ripe area for consolidation. And that's where we are right now. So <clears throat> what market are we talking about? Well, the big market here, the $61.2 billion in 2022 was the non-surgical market. And by all data points, that is anticipated to grow between 12 and 15% for the next six, seven years. What also they like about it is that it's somewhat recession proof. I mean, we know this from Max, Max Factor many, many years ago, and we saw it in 2008 with Botox and we saw it with makeup, even though the big ticket items, the surgical items per se, you know, people saw a drop in their practice volume, surgical practice by 25 to 40, 50% some doctors. Um, they kind of feel that this non-surgical is kind of recession proof. Uh, North America and the U.S. are still ranked number one, although this is growing in every market. Here's another study. Okay. Shows about 14% expected growth in the non-surgical market through 2020, 2030, at least that we see. Um, and with skin rejuvenation continuing to grow, injectables, of course, continuing to grow in other areas uh, of the non-surgical continuing to grow, you know, freezing fat and all that sort of thing. So that is why the market is, quote, ripe for consolidation. Now, <clears throat> you know, well, what about corporate practice of medicine? Wasn't that a thing? You know, what is it? So corporate practice of medicine, because like, how can these private equity groups just buy a medical practice? I mean, corporate practice of medicine or CPOM, you know, the doctrine is that an investor cannot own a medical practice, just like an investor cannot own a law practice or an accounting practice for that matter. And so, you know, and this has been known, this is why, unless it's a non-for-profit or a hospital, but business people, it's just like you couldn't, and there's a reason why, because you don't want business people telling you what's best for patients, right? I mean, if business people are no longer, you know, are in charge, well, then maybe 
you won't exactly be acting in the best interest of the patient. So that's why in many streets, I think it's 32 states, corporate practice medicine is illegal. There are some states where companies can actually buy. But like, for example, and, and, and it's for good reason. Like, for example, say a registered, well, let's say a, a, a doctor joins forces with an attorney and, and the doctor buys part of the medical practice or the, the attorney practice. He could be in a position whereby the doctor is influencing referrals and this could be viewed as a kickback. So, so it's aimed at protecting patients. In other words, the patient's obligations versus the profit to the shareholders, right? We take a Hippocratic oath to always do our oath is to do what's in the best interest of the patient, right? Um, it also prevents a commercialization of medicine and pre prevents a non-doctor from owning a medical practice. Now, corporate practice of medicine is illegal. And like I said, I think 32 states. Um, so how in the world do people get go around this, right? Okay, by forming an MSO. Well, what's an MSO? Well, it's an entity that supplies the administrative support to the medical practice. And as you can see, there's the anatomy of an MSO. Here is the professional practice. Here's the doc. The doctor owns 100% of it. There is a contract, okay? So in other words, the MSO runs the practice through a contract. So, And it lets the doctors be doctors, supposedly. And the two entities are brought together by a contract. So the MSO can be owned by non-medical doctors. And basically what this is, is a workaround. It's a workaround corporate practice of medicine. Because in the beginning, I saw these things popping up and I'm saying, what? And then I started hearing about, you know, DSOs, which are dental practices and MSOs. But this is exactly the workaround for buying a medical practice. In fact, if you remember about 20 years ago, publicly company, public companies were buying medical practices. And the reality is many years later, it did not pan out for the doctors or pan out for shareholders. So there's definitely a little bit of controversy about are these the best thing for doctors? In this model too, you can have, here's the patient. Patient is paying to the medical practice, medical spa and the surgery center. And then these entities can then have a contract or an operating agreement with the MSO to manage the practice. Okay, so what are the advantages? And, and, and theoretically, especially the business people, you know, are saying, well, there's some advantages, you know, to a business person running the practice because they can run the entire advantage, uh, entire business. They can add value by cost savings and negotiating contracts and, and uh, IT tech matters and economy of scale. You know, if you're a big entity, you're going to pay less for Botox than Dr. Smith, who is just himself and maybe one injector. And then all the economy scale of HR issues. Uh, it can be owned by non-physician investors. So you, people can invest into growing it. And of course, doctors can be doctors. Theoretically, this, these are the advantages. And so this is what the business world has, you know, used as their workaround and argued that MSOs are good for medicine. There are some potential disadvantages, okay? You know, the MSO or private equity, which is invested in owns the MSO, can be making decisions that they shouldn't be making. You know, I, I read a story about a dermatology group 
who the dermatologists were told they could no longer use um, Hylodex because it was, quote, too expensive. That, in me, is overreach of administration or the MSO telling the doctors how to be doctors. There can be some reduced flexibility or a loss of control. And what if the MSO is not run well? Okay, poor management and no cost savings. I mean, if there's no cost savings, then why do you need an MSO? And what's the benefit to that? And oftentimes, private equity interests are not congruent with doctors. The private equity's interest, quite frankly, is to deliver for shareholders. And history repeats itself, meaning if this didn't work with public markets buying traditional functional medical practice, why would it be any better for the aesthetic practices? And this is just something that these are just things to think about. How does private equity win by adding value or not? If the case may be, because you say, well, if they're going to, I could get it. Okay. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm Dr. Smith and I've grown to a point and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of dealing with my, um, with my patients, I'm kind of deal, tired of dealing with front desk and hiring people, hiring and firing, you know, maybe there's a benefit to that. And how does private equity add here? Well, first of all, economy of scale. You know, if you're a big entity and a medical MSO, you're going to do, you're going to have much more sophisticated, sophisticated marketing, finance, accounting, purchasing, cost savings, and best practices, right? Can we agree? that there's only one best way to do something. Let's figure out the best process for taking care of Botox patients and then scale that up. And so each doctor doesn't have to quote, reinvent the wheel, so to speak, right? Um, MSOs might be better at growing. If you start adding a bunch of practices together, you're, you, you may have more sophisticated marketing so they can help facilitate the growth and thus profit. Uh, how about leadership and culture? You know, doctors aren't always the best leaders and they don't always bring the best culture. They get their ego in the way. It's a real problem. You know, and most practices, the doctor, you know, they hit a glass ceiling with their management style or their ego or their culture. You know, I mean, I feel like we run an amazing operation and we have an amazing culture, a culture of winning accountability and helping each other. But, you know, a lot of practices aren't, aren't that way at all. You know, how else? Well, simply just running a better business, you know, efficiency and successfully growing organically. There are a lot of practices that just certain hit a certain level and that's it. And then I'm going to talk a little bit in a moment about the multiple arbitrage, because this is where the private equity people win. And of course, if the doctors are involved in some manner, if they hold shares, they win as well. So that's how private equity helps add value or not if they don't deliver. Okay. So what's the multiple arbitrage? This is, this is a, the multiple arbitrage in buying a business at an attractable earnings, multiple of earnings and selling it at a much higher level of EBITDA. Okay. How does that work? Well, large companies are given and to give a market will reward equity holders with a bigger multiple EBITDA. Let me explain that to you. Okay. If you have a business that's doing $5 million with two, with a million dollars in profit, 5 million with a million dollars in profit, 
Um, that might be worth a multiple of four or a multiple of maybe five. Okay. What does that mean? You got a million in profit, a multiple of four, multiple that business is worth four or five million. You get a business that's worth that's doing about 15 million in gross and is doing three million of profit. Okay. So, you know, about the same percentage, 20% profit margin. Um, that multiple of EBITDA is probably worth six to seven. Now, string a bunch of these together, and now your collective revenue stream is a hundred million dollars with a $20 million profit margin. That multiple of that business valuation worth is potentially worth a number of 10 times maybe EBITDA, meaning that business is worth about a hundred million dollars. So what that means is if you bring smaller companies in at smaller multiples of EBITDA and you line them up together and effectively grow it, you, everybody collectively wins. And this is, this is the, about as sexy as it gets in the world of private equity. Okay. So what are the steps in a roll-up? First of all, typically the private equity firm will do their research. They will determine that a market is right for consolidation. They think they can add value. They will purchase a larger platform business with this outstanding management leadership in, in EBITDA. In other words, you can have a business that's doing 10% profit, or you can have a business that's doing 20 or 25%. If the industry standard is 15 and you have a business that's doing 22 or 23, you have a well-run business. Okay. And, and they'll often pay a little higher for this platform, this platform of the ideal business that they want to tack on smaller businesses, anywhere between six and eight times EBITDA. And then they add on smaller units of multiple smaller EBITDA, which will be assimilated in. Let me give you an example of how this works. The larger platform, private equity pays six times or say pay seven times EBITDA. Okay. Now they're bringing in the smaller businesses. They're paying them, you see, they're paying them three or four times EBITDA. The minute they're assimilated and just doing the same as they've done in the past, they are worth, if it were to be sold, somewhere between six and eight EBITDA. And as that, those gross numbers go up, the value goes up and up and up. And that is how private equity wins. So what is the approach that the best private equity firms take? First, they take a very disciplined and slow approach and they look for winners and they don't mind paying well for the winners. A friend of mine who did about 16 acquisitions said to me when I was looking to buy up medical spas, he said, Ed, one thing you don't want to do in rolling up a model is buy a fixer upper. Don't buy something that's broken and think you're going to fix it. And that's really a good strategy for private equity as well. So they're looking and, and they're also not looking to buy something that's too small because it costs them the same to assimilate or bring in someone doing three and a half or 4 million as it does to bringing in someone who's doing a million, you know, all the legal, all the accounting, 
all that that it takes to due diligence. Um, so it takes a lot to roll them up as well. So there's some of the rules of thumb. So here we go. And here's the multiple arbitrage effect that I just, I want to kind of show that I put together for a talk. Okay. So let's come up here. Here is, let's find, okay, let's find the platform practice up here. The platform practice is doing 15 million with 3 million EBITDA. They buy it for seven. Okay. So three times seven is 21. This is what they paid. And all right. Now, next one, here's one that's doing 5 million and they pay a four times multiple because it's a smaller. So they got 6 million into this one. Okay. The EBITDA is three. The EBITDA is 1.5 here. They got another one. And so they start lining up and I just tried to keep these all simple. They're all 5 million doing it. So here's what they've paid. 21 million, 6 million, 6 million, 6 million, 6 million, 6 million, 6 million. Okay. This is what they have paid. All right. $69 million. Now let's make some assumptions. Let's assume three years. These are done over three years and Let's assume they're done early, but they're going to happen over a period of time. Let's assume these businesses all grow at a 15% rate. And let's assume uh, that they're acquired evenly over, over three years. Okay. So now with the growth of 15%, they're now 15 million EBITDA is now worth 18 million EBITDA, right? So, but because they are all lined up together, they're no longer worth a multiple of four. They're worth a multiple of 11, uh, 11. Okay. So here we go. This is 69 million. Now this enterprise is worth about 204 million. That's pretty smoking hot, right? Now it doesn't take into consideration a couple things. It doesn't take into consideration management fees and the cost of the accountants and the attorneys and all the other stuff. But it just goes to show there's a pretty big spread here over a three or four year period of time where private equity can now get their money back out. Many times private equity is structured where they actually put in, you know, equity and 70% of its debt. And then there's carrying costs of debt. And I don't need to get into all that, but private equity actually only put out of their pocket 18 million. Okay. To buy the 69 million to have it worth 204. And that is right there, ladies and gentlemen, why private equity is so interested in the non-surgical aesthetic practices. Okay. Why isn't private equity interested in most aesthetic surgical practice? <clears throat> well, problem is it's too dependent on one big player. Okay. If Dr. Smith is making up the vast majority of that income, with the laying on of his or her hands, um, the business model is too fragile. In other words, something happens to Dr. Smith, they're screwed. What they like to see is that one, that the doctors, if there's several doctors involved, that each one of them is less and le is not as relevant. In other words, what they want is a plug and play. And that's why they went after ophthalmology a couple of years ago. The other problem with surgeons is their ego. You know, 
I mean, you bring in another surgeon and this one starts to get a little busier and then they get it. And let's face it, lack of leadership, culture, team, a lot of surgical practices are terribly run. It's all about the doctor and they're not scalable. And yet many of them are co-mingled with their finances and medical spas. And this makes it very, very hard for them to assimilate versus the, just the medical spa model. Now, this is the frightening thing is that PE fails, not falls, but fails 60 to 70% of the time in a roll up in 60 to 70% of the time, private equity does not get to a point where it adds value to the shareholders. In other words, the, and it's really very simple why this happens. It's the same thing that 70% of acquisitions in a publicly traded by a publicly traded company of another company don't deliver for shareholders. And really what it comes down to is that assimilation of culture. So here are the reasons. There are multiple reasons of them not delivering. And this is really the big caution slide. You know, the, the private equity terms, uh, companies are always talking about getting the second bite out of the apple. But if they don't get that over the finish line in three or four or five years, um, it doesn't, the doctors or whoever has equity in there doesn't necessarily get a second bite out of the apple. One, if the private equity firm is what they call, they, they got deal fever, it's very easy for them to overpay on EBITDA. In other words, they got a clinic, they want it so bad um, that they overpay just a little bit. And just like in real estate and just like in any other business, you cannot overpay. If you overpay in real estate, you lose money. The way to make money is to make it the day you buy it. Okay. Somewhere else is they're unable to just achieve real organic growth and value. You know, they make these assumptions of 15% per year growth. Well, what if that doesn't happen? What if we have a recession? Being over leveraged in a debt equity, especially now as interest rates are up to 7%, it affects the model. It affects the profitability. Uh, one of the other ways is, you know, the inability to assimilate multiple entities due to cultural uh, misalignment. You know, you're, you're, you're taking, I knew of a, a PE firm that rolled up a practice in, uh, in, in the Carolinas with another practice that was in Florida, and they couldn't be any more different. What do you think the likelihood of them play, working out of the same playbook are going to be? And now you've got, you know, discord and you've got, you know, some, um, some frustration, poor understanding of the industry. You know, what if, what if, you know, we're making assumptions that it's easy to roll up medical spas and in reality, they're so far different than rolling up something else that is, that is identical. For example, Let's say you're talking about rolling up a dental practice where there's standards or ophthalmology practice where there's practice is pretty much practice the same way. In the medical spa business, it's the wild, wild west. You've got one business model. They're doing IV hydration therapy and NAD, and you've got another model that's doing uh, a ton of cool sculpting. And that could be a potential problem. Okay. So understanding and then physicians are not close and this is one of the big ones you know if the physicians are not close to the decision making it's easy for pe to not understand the industry i had a pe firm come and interview me and they were hot and they offered a you know hot to bias and they offered us a lot of money for our non-surgical 
there's a problem there. We spent a day with them and realized they don't really understand our industry. Why would I want to sell and, and maintain equity in, in that type of position? What do you think my faith is in them of doing a better job? You know, well, one of the reasons a lot of people do it is succession planning. If you grow an entity, you get to a certain level at some point, you know, you, you need to pull some equity out. And so, um, yeah, so many listen, so many, you know, I think there's some things you, you need to ask, um, when you're looking at those kind of situations, one of them is, you know, as I'm being rolled up by private equity, um, how much influence will I really have? Am I just another cog in the wheel? Because, um, you know, we all know people whose businesses have been bought. And let's face it, if someone receives a hunk of change and they buy your business, it's no longer your business. I mean, some people get walked to the door, quite frankly. And that happens to a lot of businesses I know where someone bought the business. So, you know, how well do you know what their goals are? What is their vision? You know, if someone told me they were looking to buy, roll up a bunch of physician practices, I quite frankly don't see how that can be successful. I mean, surgical practices, because the surgeons are also different. Their egos get in the way. Um, many of them are a little bit of a hot mess in the way they run their businesses. Um, you know, what kind of control do you have? Are they going to change the way your people are getting paid? I can tell you that there are winners and there are losers in the private equity world. There are those who have a really, really good track record. They, they don't want to disturb the culture. They only buy winners and they basically buy what's considered best in class and hire the absolute best people. And they are the ones that are much more likely to succeed. Because if we can go back to this slide now, what this really comes down to is you can't just align and assimilate revenue streams and expect to, to sell it, package it up and sell it. The only way this works is if this is a better business. This and private equity, private equity actually adds value to this equation right here that we're talking about. So that now you have formed a better business model, better leadership, which is 99.9%, .9%, but quite frankly, better, better leadership, but economy of scale, better systems, policies, precise culture. And quite frankly, if this is done correctly, the doctors do win, especially the doctors who still have equity in the main entity. But there's a lot to really understand and know about whether you are partnering with the right private equity firm. So to me, as I were, you know, as I would consider something along these lines, and if you have any other questions, you, you know, shoot me an email. If you run or want, want to run some things, buy me some scenarios, but <clears throat> I know what's out there now. There are a lot of, I'll, I'll give you an, I'll give you a couple of stories. There was a, one PE firm that basically offered us a multiple of eight on our Rejuva Center. Our, um, and we, you know, as we, without even seeing us, quite frankly, they offered that to us just based on our finances. And when I questioned the person that was doing the due diligence, and they, first of all, they never even made a site visit to see us. They, you know, they talked about my reputation and all this other stuff, but, but the reality is they had never been here and 
I said, well, how many other medical spas and aesthetic practices do you have under your belt right now? And they had none. You know, they had done some stuff in ophthalmology. So there are a lot of them out there that are inexperienced. There are 70% of them, okay, that are going to fail. We know that statistically and historically. So it's very important to know who you are partnering with. Now, let's talk about how someone could really win on this. If a surgeon were to get paid for their practice and be able to invest in the main entity, and that entity sells at a big number, now the surgeon or the doctor, or if that entity is allowed then his team to invest, everybody could potentially win. And I think that those models do exist out there. And again, I'm familiar with that with what's out there. If anyone wants to shoot me an email and run some things by me, but there are also a lot of people that are inexperienced and in the aesthetic space that really want to, you know, again, deliver. That's what PE firms do. They buy things, they look to hold them for four to seven years, sell, get out and make a significant multiple. Um, and that's what the investors expect. People who invest expect a return. They're not just doing it to be, to be nice. Um, so, but again, done 20 to 30% of time, the doctors or whoever invests in this can get a second bite out of that apple. And that multiple can be four or five times what is put back into the main entity. So I know this is a little confusing, but I, I just felt it was important to put it out there. Um, and, uh, you know, again, shoot me some emails. As you guys know, I have a I have this podcast where I talk about all things aesthetic medicine. Um, and I have a ton of experience in kicking the tires of at least 10 private equity firms. And I know, you know, I know what works. I know what doesn't work. So if someone has any questions, please feel free to reach out.